This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'd like to just start with this question. What is the project of literature in Western civilization? What is the project of literature in Western civilization? Is literature an artifact of culture? So for instance, is there first a culture and then literature comes out of that? Or is there literature and that literature serves as a driving force to shape culture? I think if you think about television programs and movies, we could ask the same thing, right? Are those television programs and movies or the stuff that's out there on social media, whatever, is that, is that a product of the culture or is it a driving force of the culture? What I would like to propose is that it's actually a driving force of the culture, that it creates, in a sense, the culture, right? And there's, there are positive and negative ways of speaking about culture. So look at this word culture. Let's speak about it in its original sense, not the pejorative, the pejorative sense of, you know, you think about the root of culture, the word cult, right? Cultus. Not creepy cult, right? Like creepy people do strange things, kind of cult that we want to get away from. But cultus in the Latin, meaning uh, reverence or worship. So at the heart of that word culture, there's this dealing with what we worship, what we value, what we hold dear. So cult, what do we cultivate? What do we sow? What do we tend in the hearts of young people? What are we sowing? What are we tending in our own hearts, right? Augustine would ask, is it, is it flowers? Is it something that bears fruit, like wheat? Or is it something like weeds or thorns? What is it that we're cultivating in our own minds and hearts through the type of literature or through the type of media that we allow ourselves to receive? The greatest of literature, the truest of literature, seeks to answer one question. And that question is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? So for instance, the perennial questions that Plato posed are the very questions that the best of literature answers. So what did Plato ask? What does it mean to be noble? What does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be honorable? What does it mean to be good? Aristotle in his rhetoric, his poetics, and then Cicero the rhetorician, they would speak of not only the rhetorician as having three aims, but also great literature as having three aims. So what are the aims of literature? First of all, to instruct, right? We want to pick up literature and we want to, we want to learn something from it. So this is what they call the logos, right? The reason, the philosophy, the argument behind the piece of literature. But then another aim of literature, in addition to instruct, is to delight, right? Otherwise people wouldn't read literature. So there's an element of literature that should engage us, that should entertain us, that should make us laugh. So this aspect is commonly known as the ethos, the spirit, or the character, or the ethics of the piece. Uh, and then finally, the third, so to instruct, to delight, the third is to move or to inspire. And so this is the pathos, right? This idea of getting to the heart, uh, moving our feelings, right? So that we have an attraction, a desire for the good, and a repulsion, right? A disgust toward the evil. 
this, the logos, the pathos, the ethos, to instruct, to delight, to move, to inspire. All of these are employed to what end in literature? The shaping of the moral imagination. The shaping of the moral imagination. So there's a Thomistic principle that says, in order to act, and in fact, before you act, you must be able to conceive of the action in your imagination. Okay, so we can probably relate to this, right? Have you ever tried to plan a surprise party for a friend of yours? So in order to plan a surprise party, or in order to take, carry off a surprise party successfully, you have to conceive of it in your imagination, right? You have to think through it. So in the same way, if we have this larger project of being truly human, we need characters, we need people, others, to teach us how to conceive of what it means to be noble, to be honest, to be pure, to be just, to be heroic. So it's the characters in literature that actually form our imaginations toward this end. So can you just, this, now I doubt that, any, I'm not sure, maybe some of you are dads out there, um, or you're thinking of being dads, or maybe you're, you have a lot, of, you have some exposure to literature, but I'm going to talk about children's literature for a second first, right? Because this is in a sense where all of our imaginations were first formed. Can you raise your hand if you've ever read a fairy tale? Okay, great. Have you, can you raise your hand if you've, now I'm going to get really specific. Can you raise your hand if you've ever read Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie books? Okay, good. Some people have read them. Now, I have to admit that I just watched you know, the television shows. <laughs> I never actually read the literature, but then this, like, within the past few years, I started making my way through them. And what I, what I see in the Laura Ingalls Wilder literature in her, in her books, she actually is presenting something really beautiful. She's presenting a family, a home that is built on self-sacrifice. And it's so beautifully done because there's a sincerity and a straightforwardness, right? It's really coming out of her own experience. So I, I look at her parents and I think, wow, they're really remarkable people. Okay, so let me give you an example. I'm going to give you a few examples. So, you know, they're poor because they're, he, they're, it's a farming family, and he has, I think, three daughters, right? He doesn't have any sons to help him on the farm. So this poor guy is doing all the work, and, you know, of course the mother helps and the girls help insofar as they can, but he doesn't have a son. And so he's farming, 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 farming. His boots start to get worn out. And then he catches them. His boots keep getting worn out. He has to catch them again. He has to catch them again. And then finally, the family has $3, $3 saved up. And so they're like, Pa, you gotta go to the, you got to go into town and get yourself new boots. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to go. So he goes into town, and they all can't wait till he gets back. He gets back, and what does he have? The same old boots. Why? Because he met Pastor Alden in the town, and Pastor Alden just needed three more dollars for the church bell. <laughs> and so he gave it to the, for the church bell. So you see the same type of self-sacrifice again and again. One of my favorites is Caroline. His wife, so it's Caroline and Charles. Those are Laura's parents. So Caroline is bundling Charles up. You know, because if you have somebody bundle you up, you could be more effectively protected against the cold than if you were bundling yourself up alone, right? So she's bundling him up. She's putting on his scarf and putting on his coat. And she, you know, pats him like this and says, oh, Charles, I wish you had a new coat. And then he grabs her. <laughs> he grabs her and he says, oh, Caroline, I wish you had diamonds. <laughs> right? So there's this, this kind of beautiful share of affection that you see in their poverty. 
Um, and there's another time, you know, Paul has finally saved up all of this money. And so now they can all go into town and they buy the things they need, right? So the girl's shoes are starting to pinch them. So the hand-me-down thing happens. And then one girl gets new shoes. The mob buys all this material for um, new dresses to, to make for the girls. And she's good. Paul wants her to buy a material for a dress for herself. She wants him to buy a coat, right? All this kind of stuff. And so there's all of this commotion at the town square or in the little sh in the shops there. And then they finally get home. And when they get home, they're unloading everything. And as they unload everything, guess what? It's everything is for the kids. Charles didn't get the coat. Ma didn't get the material for her own dress. Everything that he did was for the children, right? So this beautiful self-sacrifice. Now my absolute favorite is on the banks of Plum Creek. There's this wonderful little episode that Laura recounts. And, okay, so they never lived by a creek before. So she's, they're really excited to live in this. She's excited to live by the creek because Laura has this, she's kind of, you know, adventurous and she's got this, yeah, spirit of daring. She's not afraid like Mary. She's not necessarily as obedient as she should be. So they all go to the creek one day and she's so excited because Pa and Ma are there, her sisters are there and they're playing in the creek, okay? And so they come back home, and then Pa lays down the rule. You cannot go to the creek by yourself. Okay, girls, no going to the creek by yourself. That's just too dangerous, right? You could drown, all these bad things. And so they're like, okay, but is Laura going to listen? No, she's not. Okay, so one day she's out playing, and she keeps going far. Keeps, she gets farther and farther away from the house. And she, she decides, okay, I'm so close to the creek. I'm going to go to the creek. Okay, so she's on her way to the path that leads to the creek. But as she gets there, what does she see? There's this weird creature in the way. She doesn't know what it is. So she gets sick, she pokes it, um, and then the, it hisses at her, and she backs up, right? And she doesn't go to the creek. Okay. Then they have dinner together, and then she tells her parents, you know, I ran into this animal. And they were like, oh, that sounds like a badger. Or maybe it was a gopher. I don't remember. So, and then they talk, they talk, they talk about gophers a little bit. And then they wash dishes, and then they go to, then they tuck the girls into bed. They say their prayers, tuck them into bed. So the way their house is, is that the dining room is really small, right? So the dining room is down here, and the girls sleep up in this little kind of loft, okay? And so the girls are, are supposed to be going to bed, and it's just Ma and Pa. They're sitting at the kitchen table talking afterwards. And Laura is feeling guilty. And so Laura comes back downstairs, and it's already getting dark outside. And it's beautiful what Laura says, but she's recounting her own experience. She goes up to her father's knee, so she's still little, right? And she, she puts her hands on her dad's knee, and she says, Pa, I did something today. And so he's like, yes, Laura? She said, well, I was going to go to the creek, and I would have gone to the creek, except there was that gopher, there was that badger there. Okay? And so Laura is waiting for her punishment, Right? She's waiting for her punishment. And you know what Laura writes? She writes, And Laura leaned on Pa's knee, and she could feel how kind and how strong he was. Isn't that gorgeous? She's waiting for her punishment. And she feels how kind and how strong he is, right? And isn't that a beautiful insight, right? Even from a child, that strength and kindness go together, right? It's like her experience of God the Father. So what do you see here in this little house on the prairie? Where you see a formation of a child's moral imagination. Right? It's already happening. Okay, I can share with you so many other stories, but what I want to do now is kind of just 
jump into talking about, before we talk about Anna Karenina, what I'd like to do is contextualize Anna Karenina, right, this work from Russian literature, one of the greatest, within the whole of Western literature. So we can speak of Western literature as having three basic periods, right? The classical, the medieval, and the modern. And you have to understand that Tolstoy, being the genius he is, writes within the tradition. So he expects us to have the background of the classical and the medieval before we pick up his book. So let's just start with the classical literature. So here, I'm heavily dependent on the work of Louise Cowan. Dr. Cowan speaks, she says, there's something in the poetic universe that is symbolized by the feminine. Think about that. There's something in the poetic universe symbolized by the feminine. And she says, what is it? Well, it's some other law, some other grace that's symbolized by woman. Woman points to a law beyond. So a law beyond what? A law beyond the masculine, right? The masculine is equated with logic, rationality. So woman represents something beyond that. So think of the great figures in classical literature, the great women in classical literature. For instance, Helen of Troy, Dido, Eve. They symbolize it, right? Helen of Troy, she has this, this dignity, this beauty that causes a fearful 10-year war and the fall of a city. These women are almost sacred figures unto themselves. And why woman? Why is woman chosen to symbolize this law beyond? Well, isn't it because there's something about her that's so captivating that Men become weak in the knees, right? Enthralled, right? Think of Aeneas, ready to give all for a woman. And if you look at other literature, even ancient literature, you see woman present in other symbols, right? Like Mother Earth and Father Sky, right? So woman is connected to the earth. So what great authors examine with us is that they reveal, they reveal to us, actually, Aspects of the human psyche, aspects of reality that we couldn't get at in any other way than through these images, right? And one of the most powerful images being woman. Okay, going back to classical literature. What are women tied up with? Women are tied up with knowledge. Can you think of a, a woman in classical literature tied up with knowledge? I think one of the first you would think of is Athena, right? Athena. She is who? She's the goddess of wisdom the teacher of heroes. You think of Eve, right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. You think of Pandora and her box, right? Women tied up with knowledge. So think about this. Women are entrusted with the task of guarding knowledge, but not just guarding knowledge, but also bestowing knowledge, teaching, education, enculturation, right? They enculturate the young in the community. They inspire hearts to truth. So this bestowing of wisdom is part of what the feminine task is. So isn't there something so fitting here that it is, that it is the beautiful that is entrusted with the truth, right? Woman is entrusted with knowledge. Woman is entrusted with the truth. Now, what else happens in classical literature in terms of masculine and feminine, male and female, man and woman? Woman is connected to agopic love. In other words, the giving of love, right? We Christians, we speak of God's love as agape, this unconditional 
love that he gives to us, right? He receives us unconditionally. So God's love is this unconditional love, this giving of love, this giving also of wisdom. So that's what woman is connected to in classical literature. Woman is connected to agapic giving love, right? And what is man connected to? Not agapic love, but erotic love, right? This eros, this romantic human love. So what is man doing? Man is questing for love. Whereas woman will receive him, and she will give him love. So this is the basic paradigm. Man questing for knowledge, questing for wisdom. Woman being, in a sense, the, the treasury wherein that knowledge and that wisdom lies. And that's why man seeks her, right? And she receives him. And she bestows the love, the wisdom upon him. Okay, so fast forwarding a little bit. This means that whenever in classical literature we see a woman in the erotic mode rather than the agapic mode, she's in trouble, right? There's something wrong with her. So think about um, Clytemnestra in Aeschylus' Oresteia. So remember Clytemnestra, she's the wife of Agamemnon, but she commits adultery. She has this affair with Agisthos. And so they have to plot together to murder Agamemnon, right? And then his children, Orestes and Electra, have to avenge their father's death. And so that's the whole of the Oresteia. And then think of Phaedra, right? She was a married woman. She's the wife of Theseus. She falls in love with Hippolytus, who's a lot like Potiphar's wife. And then think of Medea, right? She, again, the, that horrific woman who chops up her sons and feeds them to her husband for dinner, right? Can you think of anything more perverse for a woman to do? So these women are all seeking. They're in the erotic mode because they're in trouble. Well, this has a lot to do with Anna Karenina, right? Because this is precisely the mode Anna is in, in Tolstoy's novel. She's in the erotic mode. So we know she's the figure who represents something awry, something, um, something gone wrong. Okay, that's classical literature. Now let's look briefly at medieval literature. And I actually want to only look at a small sliver of medieval literature. And I'm focusing on a book uh, that Dr. Cowan speaks of that I'm sure uh, you have in your library here. It's a book by Denis de Rougemont, and it's called Love in the Western World. And this book, Love in the Western World, he focuses on the medieval romances and particularly on what went wrong with the medieval romances. Okay, so you can think about all these great tales of chivalry and love and sensuality and passion. And he's saying there's something, there's something here that's going astray from the original project of literature. Okay, so what is it, does he say? He says, he basically points out that the medieval romances went astray in their exaltation, their glorification of passion. Okay, what does he mean by this? Well, first, we just need to make a simple distinction between passion and sensuality. So sensuality, for the medievals, is something normal. It's of the body. It's part of genuine love. And in the Christian ideal, right, because we are, we are cognizant of original sin, this sensuality, for us, needs purification. It demands selflessness. So if you think of the beautiful ideal of Christian married love, and particularly the sexual aspect of Christian married love, the best of Catholic theologians will say that sexual love in, in Christian marriage should be characterized 
by reverence and modesty. Isn't that beautiful? Reverence and modesty. Okay, so that's sensuality. Nothing, so it's normal of the body, part of genuine love. Completely different from that is passion. What is passion? Passion is it's not lust, per se, right? Which is what we easily think. It's actually being in love with being in love. Right? So there's something egocentric about it. Being in love with being in love. Here we are in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, right? Think about how much of popular music today is about being in love. It's about falling in love. What percentage would you say this is? 90%? Am I, am I exaggerating if I say 90%? Okay, and then how much of music is about staying in love and being faithful and the difficulty of having children and how they grow up and seem to betray you and then um, you're, you, know, <laughs> you have other problems in marriage because you realize the other person is a jerk and then you realize you're a jerk too and then how do you get out of this, right? So, and then you come to this realization you need to die to yourself to become one, right? Is there a lot of music about that? No, right? So the same thing that he's pointing out here is actually a problem still because we're all creatures with original sin. So this, we can exalt in this being in love with being in love. I don't know if any of you have read Jane Austen. Um, in Sense and Sensibility, I forgot the name of the little girl, the adolescent. She's, she's saying one day, oh, mother, to be as holy as Guinevere is Juliet, right? She's dreaming about this. And then her mother has to point out, dear, it didn't turn out so well for them, <laughs> right? So she still has the wrong idea about what love really is. When Denis de Rougemont speaks about this exaltation of passion, what does he actually call it? He speaks of it as the dream of being a god unto oneself. Doesn't that sound just like what happened to Eve? In the day you eat of it, you will become as gods, right? You will become like God. So Denis de Rougevon calls it seeking death. And I hope by the end of this talk, it will make more sense to you why he calls it seeking death. Okay, one of, I think, the best chaplains our, our mother house has been blessed to have. We have a wonderful chaplain now. But our chaplain, um, a number of years ago, was Father John Rock, who was a Jesuit who worked with Ratzinger, alongside Ratzinger, in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And one of my favorite homilies of his, I had to memorize, I wrote this line down and I memorized it, because he said, the love of Tristan and Isolde, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere, the love of Romeo and Juliet says to the world, be damned. What does that mean? The love of Tristan and Isolde, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere, the love of Romeo and Juliet says to the world, be damned. Well, what I think it says is it says, I don't care about you. I care about me. Right? It, actually, it's fascinating Remember, we all read Romeo and Juliet when we're too young to understand what the heck is going on, right? So you're, you read in seventh or eighth grade. But one of the things that really sticks out is how often Shakespeare uses the word too, T-O-O, -O, right? This is too quick, too soon, too, right? And it's this whole idea that there's an excessiveness in their love. Because what's really happening, remember, Romeo comes to the party where he meets Juliet, and he's in, actually in love with, in love with Ros Rosalind, right? So he quickly switches over to Juliet. So there's something really capricious in his love, right? How can this be a how can this be a genuine love? So Shakespeare gives us all kinds of clues. But what's really happening, he's trying to show us, and what we also see in Lancelot and Guinevere, interested in his old, is that the other 
He's merely becoming a means through which one worships oneself, right? One is the god, one is the goddess, and they're worshiping, really, themselves. So what Denise and Rujman is saying is happening in chivalric romances is that there is a sacralization of the profane and a profanation of the sacred. Because love, as God created it to be, when it is in the form in which he created it, is sacred. But we, being fallen human beings, we have a form of love that's selfish. And when we sacralize this profane love, this self-centered love, this is diabolical. Does that make sense? And that's what the chivalric romances were doing. They were exalting Lancelot and Guinevere, who were transgressing the moral law, and setting them up as some types of heroes, right? Which they're not. So what is actually going on in this seeking death is what? I would like to propose that there is basically at the foundation of the seeking death, first of all, a rejection of reality, right? So a rejection of what? A rejection of the reality that I am born into a family. If you're a wife or a husband, the rejection of the reality that I have vowed myself before God to this one other person for all my life. And if you have a family, right, to say I have a responsibility toward these children, or if you're a child, even an adult child, to say I have a responsibility to my parents. Part, the most foundational law of reality is that human beings exist in a community. We exist in a network of relationships, and our actions impact those to whom we have a responsibility. And to deny that, to reject reality, is seeking death. It's really interesting. There's a, a book that a friend of mine encouraged me to read. It's, it's really rough reading. So my parents divorced, are divorced, and um, her parents are, were also divorced. And so she recommended this book. It's called Primal Loss. It's about the, it's a, written by adults whose parents had divorced. And there's, I think, a, a, a man, I think he might already be married, and he was talking about how his father left the family, completely abandoned them. And he said, it's like being on a, um, it's like being on a plane with your family, and you know, you're on this journey together, and all kinds of things happen on the journey, and that's how you get closer to each other, right? There's, there's happy times, and there's struggles, and you're on this plane, and you're flying together toward this destination. But he says what happens in the middle is, before you get to the destination, your dad, he takes the only parachute, opens up the cabin door to the outside, ruins the air pressure for everyone, jumps out and says, hey, see y'all later, good luck, right? That's what it's like. This is, this is how this one young man, or this yeah, young married father, characterized what his father had done to the family. And I think there's, there's a truth in that. Okay, so this idea of seeking death as a rejection of family and a rejection of social responsibility. That's what's set up for us by this reflection on the chivalric romances. Okay, so there are also, there are also of course, good, there's good literature in the medieval period that does uphold the sacred as sacred and that condemns the profane as profane. And I think that's also one of the things um, 
we see Virujman speak of. Okay, now, this takes us then to, we looked at the classical, we looked at the medieval, and now we're ready to look at the modern. Now we're, under, now we're ready to understand Anna Karenina in context. So Anna Karenina was published in 1877 and by Leo Tolstoy, a Russian Orthodox. And I just want to kind of take you through the structure of the novel. And what you have to understand about the structure of the novel is that Tolstoy has an artistic vision that is deeply moral. Right? This is how Louise Cowan puts it. An artistic vision that is deeply moral. He's different from Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is really more metaphysical, whereas Tolstoy is really practical, moral. And what's the logos and the ethos? Remember, logos, ethos, and pathos. In terms of the logos and the ethos in this novel, what is it? What is, what is he trying to teach us? What is he trying to encourage us in the spirit of? He's trying to prove to us or show to us or illustrate to us that the foundation of society is marriage. That the health of a society depends on the health of marriage. Does that make sense? So let's just pause for a second and think about our own society right now, okay? So I'm going to start with a 10. So if you think marriages are a 10, then I'll go to all the way to zero. <laughs> Raise your hand when you think I get to the number. So 10 being the best and the greatest marriage could be, one being the weakest and the worst you think marriage could be. Okay, so just kind of take a, an audience poll of where we think, where you think marriage is in our society. Okay, so raise your hand if you think marriage is at a 10 right now in our society. Nine, eight, seven, nobody's raising their hand. Six, five, okay, got three fives, four, lots more fours, three, more threes, two, one. Okay, yeah, we, have some, we have some idealists here, which is great. Two ones, right? So, we can all admit that marriage is in a terrible state. Okay. Well, let's do the same thing for where is our society as a whole? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. Wow, that's hands here too. One more hands. One. Okay, that makes sense, right? Because if marriage isn't strong, society is not going to be strong. Think about that. Marriage is the foundation. Next comes family. And then society built upon that. So when society can only be strong when marriage and family is strong. And this is the beautiful role of literature. The beautiful role of literature is to shape the individual who will enter into marriage, right? Because a marriage is a marriage, it's only as strong as its weakest link. So if you don't have the strong moral conviction, the strong moral imagination to persevere in marriage, your marriage is going to fall apart. Okay, so Tolstoy's thesis then in Anna Karenina is that faithfulness in marriage is the foundation of society. It upholds society. So it's absolutely necessary for a healthy society, right? He's writing this in 1877. And what he is proposing in the way he crafts his novel is that there is something sacred at stake in marriage. There is something larger than ourselves that is at stake in marriage. Okay, this something is sacred. There's something larger than ourselves at stake in marriage, and this something is sacred. So what's the structure of the novel? How does he actually 
method out? Well, he almost called it a tale of two marriages. So you have the story of Anna Karenina and her husband, and that's one marriage. Running parallel to that is the story of Levin and Kitty. That's another marriage. So you actually have the, the story of two marriages, right? And he goes back and forth. Anna's marriage, Kitty and Levin. Anna, Kitty and Levin. Anna, Kitty and Levin. Okay? And so this true. Kitty and Levin are still in the courting stage, and then we see them married. And then Anna is already married. Okay? We see what happens with her. But this is really fascinating. It's not merely parallel marriages. I think he almost called it the tale of two marriages, but he, there's something else he's doing in the title he chose. So it's not actually just like this, because Tolstoy is a genius. It's beautiful what he's done. In this novel, there's actually two movements. There's actually one story that's a comedy, right? Comedy not in the sense of ha-ha, funny, funny, but comedy in the classical sense, right? This movement upwards, right? Like the divine comedy, it's called the comedy, because Dante goes from Inferno to Purgatorio to Paradiso. So a comedy has this movement upward. So one story, the story of Levin, is a comedy. It's a movement upward. And then Anna's story is a tragedy, a movement downward, right? So the character seems to be moving up. They think they're getting more and more power, becoming more and more prestigious. But in fact, it's a movement downward. That's why it is a tragedy. It seems to be one thing, but in fact, it's another. Okay, so let's look at this. Let's look at these two. They're actually two protagonists, right? One for the tragedy, one for the comedy. So I'd like to begin with the tragedy for the comedy, which is Levin. So Levin, Constantine Levin, who is he? He's this wealthy man. He could have chosen to, to you know, move in aristocratic circles, but there's something really um, simple and humble about him. And instead, he prefers the farm. And he wants to work side by side with his peasants to try to understand their plight and to try to actually help to, to raise them out of the difficulties of their lives, out of their lives. So he's, you know, he has these, uh, he has a beautiful uh, love for humanity, but also a concrete love. And what do we see about Levin? He's always seeking to know truth and to know justice. And he's aware that there are discrepancies between the actual or the real and the ideal. But he will aim for the ideal. And he also accepts and seeks to live by the moral laws of earthly society. So what are these moral laws of earthly society? Well, it's, it's a whole network of things. But for Levin, marriage is their symbol. And it's thereby, by seeking truth and justice, living by the moral laws of earthly society, that he will find fulfillment. This is what he is convicted in. Now, what's interesting about the way Tolstoy points, paints Levin's portrait is his way is a via negativa, right? He seems to be going downward, right? Because he's in love with Kitty, Katarina, right? She's beautiful. She's charming. She's lovely. She comes from a, from a wonderful family. But she, she rejects him, right? So he seems... He seems to have less and less and less. He seems to be going downward. But he continues not to live for himself, but to live for others, right? So once he's rejected by Kitty, he throws himself into the farm and starts helping the peasants who work on his farm. So what happens with Levin is that his movement seems to be one that is actually, that's downward, but actually it's a movement upward. And so we see that Levin's way, this via negativa, is actually the way to happiness and bliss. And it's a happiness and a bliss that's crowned with faith 
and joy. Okay, now let's talk about Anna Karenina, right? She's, in a sense, the protagonist that we know more about. And think about this, even the name of the novel, right? Anna Karenina. Karenina is the way the, um, the Russians, so Karenin is her husband's name. So if we were translating this into English, it would almost be something like Anna of Karenin, right? That their identities are bound together. And this was something that John Paul II loved to talk about, that when, when a couple gets married, their destinies are bound together. And so you see this idea in even her name, the title of the book, right? Anna of Karenin. So she's the protagonist. Remember, Levin was seeking justice, truth, virtue. Anna's a different protagonist. She's not seeking justice, truth, virtue. What is Anna seeking? Well, innocently enough, she's seeking happiness, right? Which one of us, who doesn't want to be happy? She's seeking happiness. But hers is a tragedy. Right? It seems to be a movement upward, right? From one, exalt, one, one exalted moment to another. But it's actually a movement downward. Anna is seeking self-fulfillment at all costs. She's concerned only with her reality, her world. And she's grasping, right? She's erotic. We see her grasping at love. And she's making this choice for self that seems to go upward, but that in fact is only going downward. So let's look at her story in a little bit more detail. Okay, who is Anna Karenina? Who is Anna Karenina? She's a noble woman. She's a happy woman. In fact, she's a virtuous woman. She's beautiful. Now, Louise Cowan calls her the queen of St. Petersburg society, right? If you look at how Tolstoy presents her, she's wise, she's admired. She's a trusted counselor, right? She upholds morality, Christian ideals. In fact, at the beginning of the novel, Anna, a, a, a woman is, Anna is, is coming to speak to a woman who is distraught because her husband has committed adultery, and Anna encourages the woman to not abandon her husband, to remain faithful, to forgive him, right? So Anna is upholding the morals of society. And so because this woman has such respect and admiration for Anna, she takes her advice, as difficult as it is. And also, this is something that you may not know about Anna Karenina, but she's happily married, right? If you ever watch any of the Anna Karenina movies, they're all terrible, right? Because they paint uh, Anna's marriage completely wrong. Who is Karenin? Karenin is her husband, a good man, a bureaucrat, a successful businessman, and he has a piety, a, an appropriate piety for appearances, right? It's a healthy piety for appearances. So he follows societal norms, social norms. He would never commit adultery, but he's a moral, upright, self-sacrificing man. And they have a good marriage. Anna is happy with him, right? So if you read the book and don't watch the movies, you'll see Anna is happy with him. So there's no evidence, absolutely no evidence in the novel that Anna has not been happy with Karenin in their marriage. Okay. Then what happens? So, onto the scene comes a shameless military man, so well-named, Count Vronsky, right? So Count Vronsky comes along, and he's taken with her beauty, right? He's, he goes, he's crazy about her. He's insane for her love. And so he pursues her persistently, and he's romantic, he's charming, right? And at first, Anna, being the type of person that she is, right? Strong, beautiful, wise, virtuous. She resists him. She, she's, um, she's taken aback by his impropriety, 
right? She asks him to desist. And there's actually this beautiful scene, and I apologize if you don't if you don't like this particular translation that I have. But there's this one scene where she is on she's going on a train because she's been she has to attend um, she has to attend to something, okay? And when she's on the train, guess who's on the train? Vronsky is also on the train, right? Anna has been trying to politely, uh, you know, dismiss his advances because they're inappropriate, right? He's, she thinks he's immature. And so she's trying to do this, and she's going on a train somewhere, but now he's on the train. And so she sees him, you know, they're going to the city, and she says, I didn't know you were going. And why are you going, she said, letting fall the hand which had grasped the doorpost, and irrepressible joy and animation shone in her face. Why am I going, he repeated. Why am I going, he repeated, looking straight into her eyes. You know that I am going to be, you know that I am going to be where you are, he said. I cannot do otherwise. And at this very point, as though it had overcome all obstacles, the wind scattered the snow from the car roofs and began to flutter some sheet of iron it had turned off, it had torn off, while the low-pitched whistle of the engine set up a roar in front of dismal, in, in front, dismal and lamenting. All the awesomeness of the blizzard now seemed still more splendid to her. He had uttered precisely what her soul yearned for, but which her reason dreaded. She made no answer, and in her face he beheld a struggle. Forgive me if what I have said displeases you, he said humbly. He had spoken courteously, deferentially, yet so firmly, so obdurately, that for long she could find no answer. What you say is wrong, and I beg of you, if you are a good man, forget what you have said, even as I shall forget it, she said at last. Not a single word of yours, nor a single gesture, shall I ever forget, nor could I forget. Okay, so that's one of the great scenes, right? So here, he's the, he's the tempter, right? And we see, she says, if you are a good man, right? Forget, forget me, right? Forget, forget what you've said, and I'll try to forget it. But he's not a good man. That's the point. He is not a good man. And this is why he's going to continue to pursue her. So what's happening? She, she will... Another encounter, another encounter, another encounter. You see this all through the literature, right? The virtuous woman may eventually fall through vanity, right? You see that in Cervantes, for instance, right? His, in his Don Quixote, he has all these portraits of women, and they fall through vanity. And the same thing happens to Anna. So after yet another encounter, there's one particular party that she goes to and encounters Bronsky's passion, and you see her actually begin to pay attention to the temptation. And so Tolstoy brilliantly portrays the misleading insight that has captured Anna's imagination. And what is the misleading insight that he presents? It's this. You shall be as God, right? You will be a goddess. So Anna begins to seek the dream of being a goddess. She glimpses in Vronsky's passion this power, and she stops resisting it. She stops resisting it, and she begins seeking death. So we see this modern Russian novel falling into the classical paradigm. 
And you're already familiar with the classical paradigm, right? That the downfall of the protagonist comes from hubris, this overweening pride. So for man and woman, it takes two different shapes, two different forms. So hubris, what form does it take for man? You shall be as God, right? It's some dream of power, more than is really possible. So Icarus, right, this dream of, of being able to fly. Um, think of Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Macbeth. You shall be as God, in the masculine mode, takes the form of this dream of power. You know, it's completely different in the feminine form. In the feminine form, this hubris takes the aspect of, you shall be as a goddess. So what is it for woman? What is the, what is the dream for woman? It's the dream of becoming the center of adoring worship, right? And any honest woman will say, oh yeah, that's about right, <laughs> right? This dream of being the center of adoring worship, to be the most beautiful, the most sought after, the most loved. And this is what Vronsky makes Anna feel like. So she thinks she's a goddess who should be, who can be loved infinitely, right? It's this illusion of a sentimental mad, passionate love, right? It's imaginary, it's glamorous, and it's, but it's unreal. You know, it's fascinating the way John Paul II puts it in his Theology of the Body. In his Theology of the Body, John Paul II says, man's way of lusting is lust, right? And we think of man's lust and we think, oh yeah, that's disgusting, that's gross, pornography, blah, 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 right? And we're, yeah, it's just disgusting. But you know what John Paul II says? That woman has a way of lusting, and it's different from man's way of lusting. And you know what he says? He says, sentimentality is a woman's way of lusting, right? The daydream. And this is exactly what we see in Anna, right? This daydream of being a goddess. And so it's this hubris, this overbeating pride, this dream of being a goddess. Actually, it's a search for love, but the wrong kind. And it's a self-centered kind of love. It's this hubris that makes Anna tragic. So what I'd like to do now is go to the temptation scene. So there's something, this is interesting, right? They go to a party, and this is the party I was telling you about, where Anna falls, right? She gives in to the temptation, and she begins to entertain the possibility of a relationship with Vronsky. And so she does something inappropriate. She spends entirely too much time speaking with Vronsky at a party, right? More than is appropriate. And Karen, who is very aware of societal norms, recognizes that this is inappropriate. And so he goes home ahead of her, and he's, um, he stays up past his bedtime, right, because he's a hardworking bureaucrat, and he's got to get to work in the morning, but he stays up past his bedtime to wait for Anna to come home. And so they come home, and they're, you know, they usually have this really beautiful, lovely, intimate talk about what went on at the party, right? You see there's kind of like husbands and wives. You get into a routine, and so uh, Tolstoy paints beautifully this idea of um, this routine that they have. So you see the intimacy and the beauty of the marriage as they had it. Okay, so this is Karenin is waiting up, and now Anna's walking in, and he's going to try to confront her. Anna came in with her head bent, playing with the tassels of her hood. Her face was glowing with a vivid glow. But this glow was not one of joyousness. It recalled the fearful glow of a conflagration in the midst of a dark night. Isn't that fascinating? It's diabolical, right? That's what he's trying to say. On seeing her husband, 
Anna raised her head and smiled as though she had just waked up. Right? So look, she's already putting on a show, right? Oh, you're not in bed. What a miracle, she said, throwing off her hood. And without stopping, she went on into the dressing room. It's late, Alexei Alexandrovich, she said from behind the door. Anna, I must have a talk with you. With me, she said wonderingly. She came out from the door and looked at him. Why? What is it? What is, what's it about? She asked, sitting down. Well, let's talk, if it's so necessary. But it would be better to go to sleep. Anna was saying whatever came to her tongue and marveled hearing herself at her own capacity for lying. Okay, so here's this beautiful, um, almost allusion to the father of lies, right? She's marveling at her own capacity for lying, right? So it's like she's listening to the devil, as in how, how can I carry this conversation off? How simple and natural were her words, and how likely that she was simply sleepy. She felt herself, so she told the lie, right? She was pretending, I'm sleepy, do we have to have this talk, right? She felt herself clad in an impenetrable armor of falsehood, right? So she's putting up a wall. She felt that some unseen force had come to her aid and was supporting her, right? And that's the devil, okay? Anna, I must warn you, he began. Warn me of what, she said. She looked at him so simply, so brightly, that anyone who did not know her as her husband knew her could not have noticed anything unnatural, either in the sound or the sense of the word. But to him, knowing her, knowing that whenever he went to bed five minutes later than usual, she noticed and asked him the reason. To him, knowing that every joy, every pleasure, and every pain that she felt, she communicated to him at once. To him, it meant a great deal to see now that she did not care to notice his state of mind, that she did not care to say a word about herself. He saw that the innermost recesses of her soul that had always hitherto lain open before him were now closed against him. More than that, she saw, he saw from her tone that she was not even perturbed at that, but seemed to be saying straightforwardly to him, yes, it is closed now. It is closed, which is as it should be and will be so in the future. Now he experienced a feeling such as a man might have who, returning home, finds his own house locked up. Right? Did, you, did you just hear that paragraph? Right. This shows you right now how intimate and open and beautiful their marriage was, right? There was no pain, no pleasure, no feeling of hers that he couldn't read or know and that she didn't want to talk about and that he received. And so now all of a sudden she's closing the door. And so now he comes to her as a man coming to his home to find it locked, right? They were as one, but now she's shutting him out. And that's necessary for sin, right? To sin, we have to close off the relationship, right? Mom, I don't want to talk to you. Dad, I don't want to talk to you. You don't want to talk to your spouse. Sin forces us to close ourselves off from the person we love. Okay, now what happens? Shortly thereafter, we see the beginning of the adulterous relationship between uh, Bronski and Anna, and they actually commit adultery, right? And they begin to live this adulterous affair. And so what are the, actually, this is probably the most famous scene in Anna Karenina, and it is the horse race scene. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about the horse race scene. 
because it's absolutely essential for understanding what Tolstoy is trying to do. So you all are in the audience, okay? And um, so Anna and Karenin are sitting back there up in the stands, and it's kind of like the, the stands are lifted just like regular stands, I think. And out there is the, is the whole um, obstacle course, right? So you've got to jump the fence. All the riders are there with their beautiful horses. And Vronsky is actually um, a horse riding champion. So he has won many of this, these races. He's, they expect him to win. He expects to win, right? He has this beautiful, majestic racehorse, Fufu, right? It's Fufu is the name, okay? And so he's expected to win, and he's expecting to win. So Anna is sitting next to Karenin, right, because this is a form of entertainment at the time. They watch the horse races. So Anna is next to Karenin, and they're watching the races, okay? And Vronsky is with Fufu, and they're riding, riding, riding. He's doing great. He's in the lead. He's in the lead, and he jump, his horse jumps the fence, right? And Vronsky is so exultant at being in the lead that he makes a fatal riding error, right? Anybody who rides horses knows this. I don't ride horses, so I hope I can explain this. Basically, what happens as the horse is landing, right? As he, sorry, as he lands on his horse, right? His body goes up in the air with the horse, and as he his body lands on the horse, he pulls the reins back. What does that do? It breaks the horse's neck. What happens? The horse, when it jump after it jumps the fence, because he's broken its neck, it can't stand. So it falls to the ground, and it falls on Bronsky. So people in the stands are, oh, right, because people die in these horse races. So Anna is distraught. She's inconsolable. She's thinking, has he died? Has he died? Has he died? But, and Karenin is watching her reactions, thinking, what is going on? Right? This is inappropriate for you to be reacting this way. People are watching you. Um, you need to calm down. Right? He's trying to calm her. And she won't be calm. Okay, meanwhile, what's happening? Vronsky's looking at Fru-Fru, right? This beautiful, majestic horse. And he's, he's saying, get up, get up, get up. But the horse will not get up. So you know, because he's broken its neck. You know what Vronsky does? This shows us what kind of man Vronsky is. He kicks the horse. He's destroyed it. And then he kicks the horse. What's happening? Who is Fru-Fru? Who is Fru-Fru? Who does she represent? Who does Fru-Fru represent? Anna, right? Anna is this beautiful, majestic, spirited woman. And he has destroyed her, right? And he will, in a sense, kick her, right? So this is a brilliantly done image that this man of no integrity treats this beautiful woman in this way, right? So this is this is what Tolstoy signifies by the fatal riding error, is Vronsky's lack of integrity. He destroys her. Why? Because she entrusted herself to him. And in fact, this is the tragedy of idolatry. What's the tragedy of idolatry? I love the way Jack, Rabbi Jack Bemberad puts it. He says, the tragedy of idolatry is that we attribute holiness to something that cannot bear the weight of it. Think about that. Idolatry is to attribute holiness to something that cannot bear the weight of it. Vronsky, her relationship with Vronsky, cannot bear the weight of holiness she attributes to it. Okay, 
Meanwhile, what happens? Because Anna has become hysterical, her husband, Karenin, has to escort her to the carriage to send her home. And she's so anxious over Bronsky's injury. And Karenin, meanwhile, is trying to, is trying to um, calm her, trying to ask her to not make a scene. And so that's the moment at which Anna confesses. I love him. I am his mistress. Right? So she actually confesses the adultery to Karenin. And so what has to happen, because Karenin is an upstanding man, he has to um, formally separate from Anna. And so Anna, she forsakes and abandons her young son, Sheryosha. And Sheryosha is only about eight, and supposedly she claims she, she loves him, right? She, she's devoted to him. And so she, she wants to visit Sheryosha, okay? But what is, so even though her words say that she loves Sheryosha, that she cares about Sheryosha, she wants to be with Sheryosha, what are her actions saying to Sheryosha? Her actions are saying, be damned, be damned. I don't love anyone but me. So this forsaking of real relationships, the forsaking of real relationships, this is seeking death. Now, Anna and Vronsky move into their love nest, and guess what happens? Vronsky is bored, right? Because man, he loves Anna, right? But but man has to have a work. And what do, what do we have toward Vronsky by the time this affair has unfolded? We have toward Vronsky a sense of loathing, right? And this is, this is the genius of Tolstoy's writing, is that by this powerful image, right, this pathos he has evoked, we have this loathing, right? This image that has imprinted itself indelibly on our minds, Vronsky kicking the majestic horse, destroying it. That's what he's done to Adam. Okay, now I want to take that image of Vronsky kicking the horse, kicking Anna, and I want to contrast it with what Tolstoy does with the figure of Levin. Because the figure that we have of Levin is also done through something bodily, right? Because Levin is actually, um, it's so simple, he's so simple and humble. He's, um, he's, uh, he's kind of like the village, one of the skating masters, right? He's a really great ice skater. And, but he's gotten older, and so younger guys have taken his place, and they're much better at skating than he is now, but you know, he's still pretty good at it, right? Muscle memory. So Levin is, um, Levin is, is trying to court Kitty. He's, that she's the beautiful one that he wants to marry. And you have all these beautiful descriptions of Kitty, you know, wearing her, her cheeks are flushed because she's been ice skating. She's got her little muffs on. The sun is shining on her face, and she's, you know, she just looks beautiful and radiant, and Levin wants to win her over. So they're in, they're changing, they're in this place where you, Kitty is changing her skates. And there happens to be like some kind of steps, right? And there's this new trick that the young guys are doing that you do on your ice skates down these steps, right? And Levin wants to try. And this guy shouts out, no, 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 you don't try this without practicing, right? But he goes ahead and tries it anyway. And Kitty looks at him and she's delighted, right? She smiles. And this beautiful smile of Kitty, what does it say to Levin? Well, it's, it's that instinctive sense, right? It says, to, it says to him, I can make her happy, right? I, I, can, I can provide for her, right? He's provided for her in this moment, and he can make her happy. So this, his desire to, to marry her grows even more at that moment. So you see this beautiful integrity in Levin, this simplicity, as opposed to the pretentiousness, right, and the lack of integrity in Vronsky. And another thing I love about Anna Karenina that I, that I caught reading at the end 
was the way Tolstoy depicts um, Levin. He's always with the earth, right? This idea that he's always in reality. He's drenched in reality, right? It starts raining and he's covered in poor. He's, he's drenched to the ball. He loves the trees and the wood bark. He's got his hands in the earth. He's dealing, he's, he's got the scythe and the grains, right? He's side by side with the peasants. Levin immerses himself in the beauty of reality, in, in the difficulty of reality, in the joys of reality. And there's something so gorgeous about that simplicity. So what happens? Um, it's interesting when you look at the story of Vronsky and Anna. Because really, Vronsky looks like a hero, but he's not a hero. He's the superfluous man, Dr. Cowan says. And you know how he ends the novel? Vronsky ends the novel with a toothache. Right? And what's the toothache saying? Yeah, well, there's something, it's indignity, right? The, the indignity, the, the emptiness, the weakness, the inactivity. Now, I don't want to give spoilers, but I might have to. Can you guess how Anna ends the novel? Yeah, you want to close your ears, you can. Anna ends the novel committing suicide. She throws herself in front of a train, right? Because she sees what's happened. And the mother, Vronsky's mother says, her death was as vulgar as her life. Right? So this is, it's, it's very sad. And so what can we conclude? What is Tolstoy, in a sense, um, painted for us? What we can see in Anna Karenina is this. The same thing that God said to Eve in the garden. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so... We see in Anna, in her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness, Anna finds instead absolute nothingness. Let me repeat that. In her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness, Anna instead finds herself, finds Anna finds instead absolute nothingness. So that is what an adulteress can teach us about happiness. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you all so much for your patient listening. Questions, Roman? Okay, I'm happy to take any questions if um, if there are any questions, or we could just discuss um, individually, privately, <laughs> however you would like. Could you repeat the last yes. sentence again? Yes. Um, in her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness. In her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness, Anna finds instead absolute nothingness. And that's not the first time we find this in literature, so if you want to talk about that, I'm happy to give you other examples. Oh. Yes? One of the characters that intrigued me in the book is Stephen. Yes. I was wondering what your take was on him and 
Steva. So Steva is actually Anna's brother, and Steva is a serial adulterer. So he's constantly committing adultery on his poor wife, Dolly, who has like five children, five young children. Um, I think what, this is my personal opinion. So my personal opinion is that Steva is the portrait of the irresponsible man. And then you have Dolly as, in a sense, the self-sacrificing woman who has to, in a sense, forbear the irresponsible man, right? So he's, he's not portrayed as a hero at all, right? We see him as weak, as petty, right? He, instead of buying things, for instance, like his children don't have shoes, don't have food, he's buying pearl necklaces for this actress that he's trying to commit adultery with, right? He's, he's disgusting. Again, another, and this is the beauty of the way Tolstoy paints it. He does not glorify Steva, right? Denis de Rougemont was speaking specifically about that. The bad literature would glorify someone like Steva, but I think you see Steva for the creepy, creepy, yucky, gross guy that he is. And I, yeah, so I think that's the purpose, because those types of people do exist. Um, and so the question is, in a sense, what can a woman do? Well, she does her best, and that is the beauty of, of what we see in Dolly. And when Dolly accepts, and she just, she tries, right? And she's angry and all those different things. You see Dolly go, there's a beautiful character development in Dolly. And she sees Anna's fall. Oh, it's beautiful. She, she actually pities Anna. And she'd rather be where she is, right? Because she's not the one. And that's, remember one of the great questions of Plato. Is it better to do evil and injustice to others? Or is it better to suffer injustice? And Tolstoy creates it perfectly in his, in his, in his um, novel's world that that Dolly is happy that even though she's suffering injustice, she's not perpetrating it. Whereas Anna is perpetrating injustice, and so she dies um, by suicide. Yeah. Excellent question. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, there's a lot of scholarship that reads Anna as a more empowering character, and I feel like after this, uh, do you, do you, is there any way you can see her like that? Or is, I mean, I've got her kind of... I'm not empowered. I don't feel... Oh, let's keep going. Oh, I said I've gathered kind of a damned vision from this, and I don't know if there's, yeah. you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, there could be a lot of external trenchant factors that, that lay into this, but is, is there any, you know, do, are you, how do you, yeah, how I, would you see her as, like, kind of an empowering character, can you? She's an empowering character at the beginning of the novel, but not at the end. So it's, it's interesting because you see the fall of a virtuous, beautiful woman, right, who's happy. And I think that's one of the things Tolstoy is trying to say is that we have happiness. Like, a woman can have happiness in marriage. Um, and then there's this other woman who's not happy in marriage. Um, it's interesting, he says, he says something like that at the beginning of the novel, right? He's, he's actually talking about marriage, and he says, um, all happy all ha- yeah, all happy families are alike for the same reason. Yeah, but each unhappy family is unhappy for a different reason. So it's why, because the happiness is in the universal, right? It's in the true, the good, the beautiful, the noble, the pure. And so, but the unhappiness, right, sin has all kinds of different um, twists and turns and perversions, like you can get more and more gross sin, right? So I think that's part of what he's trying to say. But I think, I think to be true to Tolstoy's moral vision, she is damned. She is, because she's seeking death, right? Sin leads to death. You find yourself on the brink of nothingness. You see the same thing in Macbeth, Right? Um, I think it's Lady Macbeth that says, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Tis better to be that which we destroy than by destruction dwell in doubtful joy. Right? And Macbeth at the end, right? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. Right? It's a tale told by an idiot, signifying nothing. 
Because that's what they, they found nothingness. Right? Sin leads to nothingness. And actually, that's another beautiful thing in classical literature. If you look at the shield of Achilles, the shield of, shield of Achilles has five folds on it. And it was made for him by the, um, the lame god Hephaestus, right? So it's made of this metal. And um, it's awesome. Have you ever heard of a shield with video embedded? That's what it's got, right? The figures on the shield move. In the center of the shield is the cosmos, right? The order of the world. Cosmos, the same root as cosmetics. Order. And that order is moral order. It's not just the order of the physical universe. Order of the physical universe reflects the order of the moral universe. That's in every single ancient tradition, right? Including the Jewish tradition. So this cosmos is at the center of the shield. It's at the center of life. And then at the top, the next fold of the shield, it's, it's a marriage, right? Because marriage, that's, where, that's how man creates cosmos. That's how man participates in God's order. Marriage and family. Beneath that same fold and the second fold, so marriage on top, is the court system, right? There's a man who's died in the, in the Agora, and so they're going over to um, get the case judged. Right? Justice is going to be done. So justice and marriage, you see. And then the next fold is a city at war and a city at peace, right? To guard love and justice. The city at war and the city at peace. And then the, the fourth fold are scenes of life, right? Like um, a harvest, uh, a harvest of wheat, also plowing, sorry, plowing first. That's where the video is because the guy plows one and then he pl- comes back. The guy gives him a, a cup of mead and he drinks it. And then he keeps plows one, plows another, drinks a cup of mead. So plowing, right? That's a part of daily life. Then the harvest of the wheat, I think the harvest of the wine, the grapes. And then um, oxen, men with oxen, and uh, lions coming out of the field and it kills the oxen and the dogs got to be held back, right? All this, these things that are part of life, right? There's going to be destruction, there's going to be ruin. And the last part of that fourth fold is beautiful. It's a festival, right? They're dancing. So this is the shield, right? And on the very outermost shield, the fifth fold, do you know what it is? It's the ocean rivers. The ocean rivers, that's all it is. Why? Because beyond the order of our life is death. If you transgress the order of this world, it will lead to death. Why is this on Achilles' shield? Because it represents the whole of Greek life. This is what he's going to die for, right? This is what he's dying to protect. The whole of life, the whole of, not just Greek life, the whole of human life. So even there you have this ancient sensibility of, right, Comer's 8th century BC, right? This ancient sensibility of, um, of the moral order. And transgressing the moral order is seeking death. We find it again and again in literature. And in fact, that was one of the, um, one of the aims of literature, right? It's, it, it, the, the central aim is to form the moral imagination. Yes, sir. Um, I haven't read it, but I watched last night for about the tenth time <laughs> Dr. Shivago and Kamarovsky. Oh, wow. I am Mara not familiar and... with that at all. Someone else is going to have to jump in and help here. Oh, okay. Same themes. Okay. And uh, that that seems to be a, a theme within Russian culture or yes. literature. Yes. Uh, Brothers Karamazov. Yes. Uh, you know, you hear described the Russian soul. Yes, 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 yes. And you mentioned, you know, can you have any thoughts on sure. that? Sure. You know, when you look at great literature, you define the same themes again and again. Why? Because we're tempted again and again. And why? We need encouragement again and again. We need inspiration again and again, right? So I would rather be like Dolly than like Anna. Um, and if you look at Levin, Levin, there's a beautiful portrait of Levin, right? He's, there's a real character development. So I think there's something that we can learn in literature that we can't learn any other way because it's almost like we take on the experience of the character. Um, and actually, 
is it Edgar that says this at the end of, of um, King Lear? He says something like that we who have not um, experienced so much nor lived so long, we can live it out in literature, right? So when you read great literature and you see these characters make the mistakes, you're like, I'm not going down that road, right? And then when you see a, a noble character, you, you think, oh, I would love to be like that. So I think that's part of what it is. And that's actually, I don't know if you've read Kristen Lovrensauter. The only reason I read it is because the, um, the mother general who brought, who was so courageous and brought our community through Vatican II, right? And now we have this beautiful, thanks be to God, wonderful, vibrant community of the Nashville Dominicans. She was the one who got us through it. And one of her favorite, I think her favorite author was Sigrid Unset. And so that's why I wanted to read Kristen Lovrensauter. But it's all about a young girl who, who makes the wrong choice. She could, have, she could have married a non-handsome, virtuous man, or she could marry a handsome, passionate, um, non-virtuous man. And that's who she chooses. And her life is miserable. Um, so it's, yeah, and I think, yeah, literature paints it so realistically that you're like, okay, I think I, think I believe this. <laughs> I think this is how it really happens. And so when you get enough of that experience through literature, and good literature, right, because there's also... Um, bad literature, right, which exalts the wicked. So that's not what we're talking about. Thank you. Yes, sir. So early in the book, um, someone actually commits suicide on the train tracks. Yes, that's... Why do you think you put that in there? And do you think that Tolstoy um, maybe does believe in the idea of fate? Believes in what? Fate. Fate? Okay. Um, so the question is, at the beginning of the book, there's a, there's a scene where there's... Um, a man who commits suicide. I don't know if it's suicide. I think he actually just, it's an accident. Yeah, I think so. He's run over by the train. And it's the same, I think it's, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the same scene in which Anna has met Vronsky. And then Vronsky, to show his chivalry, um, he goes over and he gives money to the poor widow who's, who's inconsolable because she finds out that her husband has been crushed by a train. I think this is the foreshadowing to prepare us that something um, tragic um, much more tragic than the death of this peasant man is about to happen because of this meeting of Anna and Bronski. I don't think that Tolstoy has really um, a notion, I don't think that he's painting a kind of uh, fatalism here in the meaning of Anna and Bronski. I think what he's doing instead, because it's consistent with the rest of his moral vision and the rest of his novels, is this emphasis upon our choice, the individual choice. And also the way that we can, in our imaginations, think that we are not happy, and in a sense rationalize the poor choices. So Anna, you see, again, with that scene I read you with the train, um, is this, and it's interesting that that whole idea of the train being the the place of meaning, the place of movement, right? Where are you going to go? What's the destination going to be for you? Um, But that's where the moral decision is made. We have the capacity to make the right decision, with whatever is thrown at us, right? we have that grace. But instead of accepting that grace, we can reject the grace, and we can, like Anna did in, in her bedroom, listening, talking to Karenin, right? That's so clear, that allusion to her listening to the devil, to speak the lies, to put up the walls. To put up walls to what? To those to whom we are bound in relationship. Right? So when we put up the walls to those with whom we are bound in relationship, we are beginning to seek death. And if you look at that from a theological point of view, it also makes a ton of sense, right? We're made in the image and likeness of God. God is a trinity of persons, a communion of persons. We need 
each other, right? Who are the people who are committing suicide? Who are the people that are addicted to, to substances and to uh, pornography or to social media? It's people who are lonely, people who don't know love, people who don't see their own goodness, people who don't think that they're seen or known or wanted or cared about. And this is precisely why God gives us a family, so that we will be seen and known and loved and cared about. You know, it was so beautiful. Um, the last time I was invited to speak at Notre Dame, I remember there was just beginning, before the, the formation of this group, it, it, it had to do with the legislation of, um, with legislation surrounding protecting the rights of children, which I think is so beautiful, right? So if you grew up in a single parent family, something, that's not what God intended for you, right? He intended for you to have a mother and to have a father. So you're suffering a kind of injustice. Does that make sense? Because you need both a mother and both a father. Like, there's all kinds of studies that have shown that the mother and the father each do something different for the child, right? Just look at the simple scene. You know, the kid's on a jungle gym, um, and the kid's like, Mom, look, Mom, look what I'm doing, right? And then he falls up to the ground, and he scrapes his knees on the gravel. Mom runs over, oh, sweetheart, are you okay? Dad comes over, son, that was stupid. Little boy says, that was cool, right? So we need those different voices, right? And each of those voices teaches us, helps us to become the person we ought to be. So I think that's really, it's interesting, this whole, the, the injustice that is done to those who are abandoned, right? Like that young man, young father I was reading, telling the story about when his, when his dad left the family, right? There's an injustice done to him. And there's something that happens in his own formation. But again, I think Tolstoy would point us to choice, that he doesn't have to choose to resent his father but he can choose to become not like his father, or like his father in some ways and not like his father in other ways. Um, I think psychologists, sociologists say that um, one of the key determinants of happiness is not what happened to you in the past, but how you interpret your past. Isn't that amazing? One of the key determinants of happiness is not what happened to you in your past, but how you interpret your past. Okay, I don't know if you guys know about seeing... Um, she was just made a saint, Margaret of Costello. Okay, I don't know if I'm telling the story exactly right, but it's something like this. She's born to a prince and princess in Italy, right? And so here she's born, and they're so excited they're going to have this new child. But they're disgusted because she is deformed. She's blind, she's lame, and she's deformed. So they hide her away, right? They let somebody else raise her, but they keep her in the castle. Then she gets to be like seven or eight, I can't remember. And they bring her to this shrine where they maybe a miracle can be worked for her. So they bring her to the shrine. And they say, Margaret, please pray, right? So she's taught about God, right? I think they're like her nursemaids teach her about God. So she's very pious. So they leave her there to pray. And by the end of the day, she's still praying, but she's not healed. So you know what her parents do? They leave. They abandon her. They leave her in the shrine. And so it's time for the, you know, the nun is closing up the shrine. And Margaret is still there. She's praying. She's caught in ecstasy. <laughs> and, the, and the sister says, sweetheart, it's time to go. The, the church is closing. And so she's like, Mama, Papa, Mama, Papa, she can't find them. She can't find, her parents have left her, right? This must have been a terrible desol, moment of desolation. But the, the nuns take her in. They feed her. They give her, like, this little hermitage to live in. They give her a habit to wear. Um, they let her attend daily mass, right? How does Margaret of Costello tell the story of her life? My parents were selfish jerks. I was, and God hates me, right? I was blind, lame, crippled, ugly. You know, that's not how she tells the story of her life. But she thanks the Lord that she is so blessed 
that she has these sisters who love her, that God loves her, that she can spend all her day in prayer and in good works for the poor, you know, praying for the poor. So does that make sense? She more than anyone else could have told the story of her life in a poor me self-pity way, but she doesn't. So that's why this, um, the way we see our past is, is also something that literature can help us with. Thank you, the great question. <laughs> yes? I'm wondering if you could speak to uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky's uh, relationship or their literature as reaction to the Enlightenment fragmentation of morals. Because it seems like these two works, they seem to be arguing against the, this separation of, you know, religio scientia that Nietzsche talks about. But they seem to, to point to the fact that morality is grounded in embodied humanity. Do you see that as sort of a reaction again? This is so fascinating you're asking this question. So the bottom line is no, I can't answer that question. But what I can say is this, um, is that Nietzsche, he has this fascinating idea. Um, and so I'm actually going to read it to you through the lens of a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who died, um, I think, a few months ago, and or maybe last year. Um, so Rabbi Sachs speaks about how... Um, if you look at Egypt, what do you have in Egypt? In Egypt, you have slavery and order. But then what happens in the promised land, you have, you have freedom, but chaos. And so he says Nietzsche comes along, and what does he tell us? He tells us that order is created by the making of promises. Right? This is fascinating. This is coming from Nietzsche. Nietzsche is saying that, did you hear that? Order comes from the making and keeping of promises. Doesn't that make sense? Right? A man says, I do. A woman says, I do. They have children. Order comes from the making of promises. And that's how it's maintained. So we have this, this is gorgeous. Our words have a reality-making capacity. Our words have a reality-making capacity. Think of the words of a father to his son. Son, I'm so proud of you. That was strong. That was courageous. What reality has he created in his son? He's created this reality of his son believing. I am good. I have, it takes what, I have what it takes to be a man. Right? So our words have a reality-making capacity, just as God's words have a reality-making capacity. Right? In, in Hebrew, the, um, the word for word and event are the same word, dabar. Right? A word is an event. God says, let there be light, and there was light. Right? His words have this reality-making capacity. Same with us. Our words have a reality-making capacity. When Anna is pushing Bronzy away, she is creating the reality she wants to live in. Please, if you are a good man, forget what you have said, and I will do my best to forget it too. She's making a reality. But then Bronzy is trying to make a different reality. And that reality will lead to death. So we choose. Yes, Peter. Um, so you said in the beginning of your talk how like our conception of good and evil kind of foreshadows like our actions, whether it be like sinful or like good behavior. So like by the same token, do you think like what was in Anna's heart kind of maybe dooms the marriage even before she was tempted? This is great. He's wondering if what was in Anna's heart doomed the marriage even before she was tempted. No, because I think what is, in Anna's, what is in Anna's heart is in every woman's heart. 
And this is why an adulteress can teach us something about happiness, right? That there are movements of our heart, right? Even the scripture says that. There's nothing more tortuous, meaning twisty, turning, convoluted, hard to understand. There's nothing more tortuous than the human heart. So there are movements of your heart that you cannot follow, right? Because to follow them is to to be seeking death. It leads to death. So, um, and every man, just like that's why, this is why, that's what makes it a classic, right? Is that it's universal. It's universal. Anybody else? Those were fantastic questions. Yes, Dr. Paul. This story was written at the time when most people embraced marriage. Yes, yes. And the rules. Yes. The viable rules. And it's interesting, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on Today, we have the opposite. Right. We have broken families. We have people that don't have the inherent sense of what is good, and they're lost. Exactly. And the, the meaning-making is very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what stands out to me about this story. But I, I guess, you know, this may be one of these questions you'll say and can't answer. But what led to this? Oh, I think bad literature. <laughs> <laughs> bad literature, bad movies, bad formation of moral imagination. Because if you think about it, um, especially those of you who've lived for, you know, like four or five decades, um, or even just three decades, right? You see this shift in um, the morality of movies, right? You go from Leave it to Beaver, where, um, you know, Beaver comes to his mom. Beaver's this little cute kid, center of the show, right? He comes to his mom, June, and he says, Mom, da-da-da-da-da, he's distraught, there's a problem. You know what June said to him? Well, Beaver, let's pray about it. (laughs) Okay, would you see that on television today? No way, right? But that was like primetime television. Now today, okay, now, this was years ago, and I'm sorry, I haven't taught taught high school in a really long time. So the example that comes to my mind is the OC. Anybody heard of that show, the OC? The Orange County, okay, so like... Okay, so this, and I only know about this because I was teaching, I hate to say it, St. Cecilia, I mean, I love St. Cecilia Academy, but the girls were watching the show, and they were telling me that what happens in the show, one of, one of the scenes that I still remember, because it was so disturbing, was this girl is with her boyfriend, she goes over to her house, and her mom is there, and the boyfriend starts to hit on her mom, okay? This is, this is something really disturbing and disgusting, right? This, this loss of the sense of boundaries, and in fact... This is really beautiful. Do you know for the Jews, in the Jewish tradition, to create is to create boundaries. To create is to divide. To create to create and divide is to bless. Right? Because God separates Israel from all other nations. He separates Abraham. He's dividing him. He's separating him out. And he blesses him to be a group. I will, I will make you a special people. Though all the earth is mine, right? You'll be dearer to me than all the earth. You're my special possession because you're set apart. You're divided. So morality, the work of the priest, right? God in creating is, in a sense, he is the archetype, the paradigm for the role of the priest. He divides. He separates. He creates boundaries. And that's what the priest does. Divides, separates, creates boundaries. Even think about this today if you see it in the Mass. 
right? The separate consecration. This is my body, and then this is my blood. It's not all done in one fell swoop. This is my body and my blood. He could have done that, but he didn't do it because the work of the priest is a separating. And it's also actually the way the death is symbolized. And you think of Jesus in the parables, right? He's doing his priestly work. He's dividing the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the, in the dragnet, right? The things that are valuable from the things that are not. So it's a, a kind of judgment also. So the boundaries and the separation, that's part of the whole moral law, right? The moral order is written into the created order, right? There are laws of chemistry, laws of physics, laws of cooking and baking. And if we don't follow those, it's not going to work out. Same thing. There are laws of morality. If we don't follow those, it's not going to work out. God bless you all a thousand times over. Thank you for listening.